the 38th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, my guest is historian and psychotherapist Chuck Strozier. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. My handle on Twitter is at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to the soundcloud.com site and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. And do please feel free to suggest yourself to be a guest on a future COVID calls. On Thursday, I will talk to Daniel Zerilli. Mr. Zerilli is New York City's chief climate policy advisor and one NYC director in the office of the mayor of New York. We're gonna talk about COVID-19 and climate change. As of today, there are 3,721,779 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 3,640,835 cases yesterday. 1,214,572 of those are in the United States, up from 1,194,494 yesterday. There are now a total of 71,526 reported deaths in the United States from COVID-19, up from 70,272 deaths yesterday. As I did yesterday, I'm going to share an obituary with you now. This one appeared in, um, actually on WNYC Public Radio, May 1st, Guillermo Freston. Guillermo Freston lived in a different country the eight years of his relationship with the love of his life, Ana Maria Castro Ortez. Freston resided in the Bronx and Castro Ortez in Hinotepe, a small city in Southwest Nicaragua where she was raising their three daughters. He was 51, she's 30. They had dreamed of reuniting the family in the Bronx, perhaps as early as this December. Freston, known as Willie, immigrated to the Bronx from Nicaragua in his 20s after fighting for the Sandinistas. He became a United States citizen and was a husky, kind-hearted union foreman with Local 731. He worked mostly construction and maintenance jobs on the city's bridges and had just passed his 25th work anniversary, the union said. There was another thing Freston always talked about, Nunez said, uh, his friend uh, Castro Ortez and the girls. That's the love of his life, her and his daughters. That was Willie's life, he said. Nothing else mattered to him. Freston met Castro Ortez in 2012 on one of his visits back to his home country. She said they fell in love quickly. She even took his eldest daughter in with another woman as his own. She even took in his eldest daughter with another woman as her own. The couple had two more daughters together and were married in 2016. They were working on immigration paperwork to be able to move into Freston's apartment on Boston Road later this year, but those dreams were cut short. On March 28th, Freston died alone in his apartment about four weeks after the first coronavirus case was confirmed in New York City, two weeks after the first death and about a week after Governor Cuomo put the state on pause. We practically lived on video calls, Castro Ortez recalled. When Freston got sick, they were video chatting too. On March 23rd, just as COVID-19 cases were starting to spike in the city, Freston showed up for work at the George Washington Bridge with a dry cough. His supervisor sent him home. So Castro Ortez tried to care for him by cell phone video from 3,000 miles away. 
Preston's fever was rising. She encouraged him to drink tea, bathe, take naps, and eat whatever he could, but he looked pale and was sweating, and he had uncontrollable coughing fits. One morning, while they were on a video call, she watched him get up to go to the bathroom, then collapse on the floor. Castro Ortez wanted to call some of his friends to go check on him, but he kept reassuring her he'd be fine. By then, it was Friday night, three days after Freston went home from work. They left the video call running that night, but at some point, the call went out. As soon as Castro Ortez woke up, she tried calling, but Freston didn't answer. She said she called every half hour throughout the morning. The New York State Funeral Directors Association confirmed that many countries won't accept human remains without a letter verifying that the person is not infectious, and those letters are hard to come by. Some airlines have stopped shipping human remains. Nearly a month later, Castro Ortez was still waiting for her husband's ashes to arrive back home. That's the obituary of Guillermo Freston as published by WNYC on May 1st. I'm gonna turn now to the discussion for today. My guest, I'm so glad to bring him to COVID calls, Charles B. Strozier. Chuck Strozier is Professor Emeritus of History at John Jay College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Also the training and supervising, he's a training and supervising analyst at the TRISP Foundation and a practicing psychoanalyst. He has twice been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 2001 and in 2011, and was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize in 2017. He is the author of scores of articles on history and psychoanalysis, and the author or editor of 13 books, including Heinz Kohut, The Making of a Psychoanalyst, Until the Fires Stopped Burning, 9-11 in New York City, in the words and experiences of survivors and witnesses in 2011, and as the lead with Terman, Jones, and Boyd, The Fundamentalist Mindset, Psychological Perspectives on Religion, Violence, and History. Chuck Strozier, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID calls. Thank you for asking me, Scott. I'd like to remind people that you can get questions in at any point in the conversation. You can uh, put the questions up on Twitter, just tag me at US of Disaster, or you can email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can put them in the YouTube live chat. We'll get to those questions. So as I always have been doing with these calls, Chuck, I just start by asking how you're doing, um, where you are and how things are where you are. So tell us, where are you and how are you? Well, actually I'm fine now. I was uh, in New York and uh, increasingly uh, worried about the, uh, 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 the early stages of the disaster. I mean, that was a very moving obituary you read. Um, I began to feel, I had, uh, I had a bout of cancer in the fall and I was going through chemo in January and February. So I'm 70, well, I was then 75. So I'm a male, I'm, I'm an old guy and I had a compromised immune system. So I was very worried about the statistics that I was in the niche of people who actually die from this. It's, uh, although the obituary you read, indicates that uh, by no means is only people over 70. Um, but I was very worried and I, I was actually watching with my wife watching Rachel Maddow on Tuesday, March 10th. And uh, she had a scoop and the scoop was a health official in the Trump administration had recommended that um, seniors not fly. And I looked at my wife, I said, 
this is scary. We got to get out of here. So we hired a mover the next day, Friday, they came and loaded up 190 boxes of after 34 years in New York, including 65 boxes of books and furniture. And two, Saturday, they loaded it up on trucks and we slept on a mattress on Saturday night and Sunday morning we drove to Florida and uh, stayed with some friends for a while and I bought a condo and now we've been, we've just finished moving in. So it's, it's, there's no place totally secure, but uh, it's, it's much safer and secure than uh, New York. I read the New York Times every day. It's heartbreaking what people are going through. Absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and I feel sometimes I feel guilt that I that I'm I feel so secure uh, down here in Florida on the ocean and having a good time and um, uh, I, I feel like I'm I'm vicariously experiencing the uh, the uh, uh, pandemic. Well, so many of the things you just said we're, we're going to talk about in in more detail today. How people feel about it, the distance that they may be feeling, um, guilt, but also. Um, I'm just glad you're okay. Uh, oh, <laughs> um, I'm glad you're okay. Since you and I go way back, we're having fought together for many years and uh, known each other for uh, about 20, 25 years. You know. we, we do, although I, I would say that nothing I have thought about or talked about or taught with you over the years has prepared me for what I've seen in the last, in the last eight weeks. And in fact, I have worried that I've been in the in some denial at various moments. And that's what I wanted to ask you about, about first, because we see the word denial is used a lot. We've heard the word denial a lot in the past. Think about the Holocaust or thinking about climate change more recently, but even thinking about the president of the United States right now, a lot of discussion in the media about him denying the facts of COVID-19 or uh, people who want to protest at Michigan State House or in Texas because they want to be released from social distancing orders. They're, they're denying the, the seriousness of it. But I wondered too, if we don't all have some bit of denial or, or how do we cope with a reality this, this big and this terrifying? And what do you think about that? Well, I think psychologically denial is not always unhealthy. Um, I think, and, and denial is a complex psychological phenomenon um, because it involves uh, separating yourself from uh, the full knowledge of something because it is scary, traumatic, or whatever. Um, but it can serve it can serve uh, adaptive functions in terms of getting through something and not. Uh, 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 succumbing to complete uh, uh, paralysis in uh, with anxiety. Um, so I think one to keep in mind that, that, that denial is not altogether an unhealthy uh, reaction, but basically it merges, as we've seen, uh, it merges with a lot of corruption at the national level. Um, the the way in which the Trump way in which Trump is trying to reopen the economy purely for political reasons for to keep us you know keep the economy humming again so it get reelected um, and to feeding the forces I mentioned Lansing and and Austin Texas I mean feeding those kind of collective right wing forces of denial 
that's not healthy. And that, that, that represents a kind of a, a one kind of response, I think, to the extreme fear that we understand that we have of the virus. On the other hand, it, it's sort of the, the mirror image of it or the, or the other end of the spectrum, whatever would be the metaphor, um, is the kind of panic. I mean, many of my patients, um, and I'm, I've just, my, 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 my practice, which was robust in New York is now still robust because I see everybody on, uh, you know, on Zoom basically. Just, um, but all my patients are still in New York. And often people are just reduced to a sense of passive helplessness, you know, binge watching series that they've seen three times before, eating too much. Some people have trouble getting out of bed. And, you know, that, that's also, it's not helpful and one can understand it and empathize with it. Um, but I think it's, it's also um, a, a kind of a reaction to the dangers and the fears that we face um, that one would like to see mitigated um, somehow. The merging of those two to me is really fascinating and important and I think we haven't talked about it enough in, in the public, this, this sense that denying the fullness of the, of the horror of you know these 70,000 plus people and the the data that came out yesterday that shows we may be having 3,000 deaths a day by June. That's one 9-11 a day in June. Um, so you're talking about the, the potential um, self-preservation of some measure of, of denial or distance. But when a Donald Trump denies the science or the reality or the gravity of that situation, say, Say more about how you how you think he's he's working with that. Is it possible he also can't take in the the fullness of it? Is he preserving himself, or do you think this is strategic on on his part to mobilize that denial towards towards political end? You know, I, I think it's dangerous to try to um, uh, psychoanalyze a living and dangerous and. Okay. And ethically, possibly. I, I figured you would say that, but I thought I would ask. <laughs> but I think you can talk about what I call Trumpism. In other words, uh -huh. there's, a, there's a movement, there's a kind of a Trumpist movement in America that merges with right wing uh, populism, anti intellectualism. Uh, what I, with the colleagues, you mentioned a book called The Fundamentalist Mindset, the sense of paranoia that, that, that is newly virulent. It's not, it's always been there in American history. Uh, comes and goes, but it's m mostly has been marginal, um, which you as an historian know very well. But it, it, it's assumed new life, I think, ever since 9-11. Um, and it's particularly been given um, uh, energy and vibrancy by, uh, by the Trump administration. Um, and so the Trumpism, uh, this, this, this really... Um, a movement that's filled with hatred, filled with, uh, you know, the anti-Chinese American uh, new forms of racism, for example, because the, because the virus comes out of China. I mean, that's so toxic um, and, and awful. Um, but it merges sort of generally with this, with sort of new paranoia. You know, we began hating immigrants and Mexicans, and then it sort of became Muslims. And now we forgot about, about the, the, the Mexicans and the Muslims, 
and 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 it's being directed to the to the Chinese, the sort of finding the enemy, finding somebody else who's responsible for this awful awful um, uh, pandemic, which is profoundly confusing. Mm -hmm. It's worth remembering. We don't understand where it came from. We don't understand its biology. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know what the waves of it will be. We know it. Where we suspect it'll always come in waves as all pandemics do, partly because people, I think, psychologically, they can't stand being cooped up. So then they get out and then you have a new wave. But there's so little that we really know about this virus. Uh, and we don't have even medicines to, to, to cure you of it if you get it. Mm -hmm. And we certainly don't have a vaccine. And when will we have a vaccine? And all these kinds of issues is part of the part of the pervasive anxiety that surrounds any kind of attitude so that we're surrounded by death and, and and particularly in a place like new york that's kind of a what what i called in my work on 9 11 the zones of sadness i mean we have a new geography of death in new york only it's not lower manhattan it's you know it's elmer's queens and parts of the bronx and parts of brooklyn and parts of williamsburg when the when the orthodox jews have a have a funeral for their Rebbe. Um, I mean, these kinds of settings create, a, create a, 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 a pervasive sense of horror that we live with that is, amp that is intensified because we're so confused about what it means and where it comes from and, and most of all, when it'll end. Mm -hmm. When is it ever gonna end? So that then, what we're talking about has a lot to do with trust and somebody who can make sense of uncertainty. I mean, even, you know, thinking about climate change, the climate change science, which we speak of, you know, those of us who keep up with it, we can speak with some certainties now. Um, but for a long time, there's been, I mean, among scientists, there's disagreement, not now so much, but there has been, about what were the most important findings, what were the most important metrics and data points. Those of us who put trust in science have been convinced for a long time because we trust that scientists more or less are trying to, you know, get towards some truths and, and they're not trying to trick us into um, buying uh, energy efficient cars because we all want to become social. We just don't buy into those rhetorics of trust. But do you see something exposed right now in this pandemic about sort of some shift in the, in the American mind and who Americans trust? You said this Trumpism is coalescing of, of, forces that have been out there for a while. Is that resurgent in some way? Is that emergent in some way? Are you more nervous about that now? Or this just happens to be a particularly bad situation and you saw this coming? Uh, two points. What you said about climate change, there is a, a very interesting sense in which the virus is a becomes a part of our experience of climate change and that both come from nature both come from uh you know the virus comes from animal from jumping from animals to humans um and the climate change because of our interactions with the environment the, the nature is punishing us and creating a more and more increasingly dangerous world for uh, we're the we're the the causation of that of those changes, but the, it the the, the it, it impacts us 
in a in, in often a, a quite deadly way. So it's an interesting kind of parallel, which which makes you know it 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 makes us feel nature nature becomes very dangerous. The natural world is 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 dangerous. And the other thing that's happening as a consequence of the pandemic and the with social distancing is we become enemies of each other. The way we solve it, you have to spend at least you have to stand at least six feet away from people, and if they get closer, you you really recoil. You can see people recoiling on the street, so that we we experience our neighbors as our enemies, um, and 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 that is going to have long lasting. The second part of your question, that that I think is going to have long lasting consequences. I mean, the economics of this are going to take years to get over, but also just the sort of group self, the sense of collective. Of uh, identity of, of of who our neighbors are and who we can trust and who we can love and how we can get along with people. What what kind of communal identities can we can we foster and continue? Um, I, I think the sense of people dying alone. I mean, the obituary you read of the man all by himself talking to his wife and you know in Nicaragua and he collapses on the screen and the Zoom he collapses on the on the floor and and. You know, I mean, I know a, a colleague who's dying in the hospital, and he, his wife, can't go see him. I mean, that's the experience of people, you know, and not just occasional people, but thousands of people dying alone. Um, and I think that's that's something that we, it'll take a long time to mourn and to work through and to you know reconcile ourselves to. How could we let that happen? How can that be? You know. Mm -hmm. I have, um, I've, it's been complicated for me. I've had so many mixed thoughts about this. On the one hand, I'm deeply impressed with the sort of global collective action that we see. And even people who are thinking about climate change and have become very uh, pessimistic uh, in the last few years that anything was possible. And now within 12 weeks, people around the world listen to scientific experts who tell them a course of action and they do it. And, they, and it vastly disrupts their lives in all the many ways that we've talked about. And they chafe against it, they don't like it, and they still do it to protect themselves and their family, but also to protect people they will never meet. That's impressive to me. But on the other side is what you're describing, um, the enforcement of distance, the Zoom Shiva, the, the the seeing your loved one, I mean, that's an extraordinary case of the obituary, but seeing a loved one collapse on a screen, not being able to reach out. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to reconcile those, those two sides of the psychological ledger in terms of how they will impact people. I mean, are you, you're an expert in the American Civil War, in, in the history of terrorism. I mean, you, you know, you really understand in a deep way the ways that trauma and distance can affect people psychologically. Do, you, do we have good models to think with here or good historical examples to help us make sense of this kind of a moment? Well, I, I, I would never want to lose the hope. I, I, I've always, I, I find it very annoying when people talk about climate change and say it's the end of civilization as we know it and there's no hope and we've passed the tipping point and all is all is lost i i i just refuse to believe that um and i think you know more immediately during the during the um, pandemic 
a lot of people, including some of my patients, are absolutely loving being sheltering in place. They're getting along, doing more things with their children, and they're getting along with one woman gets along with her husband now, and they've never had a better relationship, and you know, and they paint with their children. So it, it's not, you know, the the human spirit is very resilient, and 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 I think one wants to uh, hold on to that. On the other hand, I mean, your your larger question is one that I've thought a lot about and been troubled by, and that's in the nuclear age. I do think that we always are subject to the threat of radiation and death and totalistic death from nuclear weapons that hangs over us. It's a shadow. And and I think it in this case, in the case of the of the virus, there's a specific connection between the virus and radiation in that the virus is tasteless, it's an invisible contamination. We can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't smell it, we can't hear it. And yet it penetrates our body, just like radiation, and it carries death. So I think, I think the, one of the things that happens, that is happening psychologically, um, is that the virus is intensified and amplified because of that largely unconscious association with nuclear threat. Mm. And that's something, nuclear threat is, you know, the world changed on August 6, 1945. And we changed psychologically. Our, our relationship to death changed. Mm. And so when you have something like the pandemic, which is unlike 9-11, not just a, an event that happened one day with massive consequences, but then we moved away from it. You know, th th this, this, as you say, it's we're, we're at a point now where we have the the deaths occurring every day, mm -hmm. the equivalent to 9/11, and of course that's deaths. That's not the number of infections. I mean, the number of infections are eight or ten times that, uh, at least. So, so yes, it's a there. There is something. There, there's something new about the intensification of our psychological despair with the pandemic that is that it, as with 9-11 and other kinds of disasters but particularly with 9-11 in the american experience it, it evokes nuclear nuclear it evokes the fears of radiation and nuclear fear in other words evokes the apocalyptic right. evokes the apocalyptic narrative and 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 that's that that lends it a particular that lends the kind of fear and anxieties we have a particular character um, leading to you know truly bizarre conspiratorial explanations i mean there are always going to be conspiracies and as you know we taught together courses on 9-11 i mean the 9-11 conspiracy was a very robust thing in, in america for five or six years um but this this is like one conspiracy theory after another from 5g towers to you know labs in china to I mean, it's like dystopian, bloated dystopians like Rush Limbaugh. They seem to come up with another conspiracy every day for the possibilities.
people that you're listening to COVID Calls, and my guest today is historian and psychotherapist Chuck Strozier. Chuck, I want to draw you out on this, on the apocalyptic and the connection. I haven't heard um, anybody make this connection as clearly as you just have. I think we should linger with it a little bit longer. You said that the world changed August 6, 1945, and from there on, this sort of specter of the apocalyptic hangs over people, and you, and you make this connection also to radiation. Um, it, can't be seen, it can't be sensed, it seems to be um, so mysterious, it can work on you. And I think the way we've seen the COVID-19 written about and that so many people may be carrying it or have had it and not know, similar to the way we conceptualize you know, people who've been exposed to radiation, if they're downwinders in Nevada or if they're people who are living in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I guess one of the ways into this is to ask you to say a little bit more about apocalyptic thinking more generally. How does it, what does it spring from? How does it operate? And how, you know, just as you were talking about denial, is there an upside of that? Is there some sort of human self-preservation aspect involved in the apocalyptic? Or is this something we just really need to be called out and be afraid of? Well, historically, the apocalyptic, which is the, you know, humans are the only animals with foreknowledge of our death. And the apocalyptic is the extension of that to, all humans. So the apocalyptic is, is a totalistic death. Un, until the nuclear age, the apocalyptic was always very important. It was very important to create an apocalyptic narrative. And it, it really may have, I, I think, we don't have written records, so we can't know for sure. I think it was important in, in mystical religious thinkers in the creation of culture. Um, I don't know that, but that's what I suspect just psychohistorically. Um, but the thing about the, the, the historically is the stories that we have, the apocalyptic stories we have, the, the or text is the book of Revelation, is we, it, it always requires God, two things. It always requires God to carry out the destruction. And there's a point. The point is that Jesus comes back. The Messiah comes, the remnant survives, the reborn, and everybody else dies. So it's total destruction, but it's hopeful. It's hopeful and endings are beginnings. And, and that's true of absolutely every apocalyptic story and every religion uh, and every secular, like the Nazis. The Nazis survive and everyone else dies, right? Um, in the thousand-year thousand year right. With Nuclear weapons, what's so fundamental is it's, a, it's what you, you, you have Robert J. Lipton's Death and Life on your shelf up there. It's what Robert J. Lipton called in another book, not in that book, called It's a Pointless Apocalypse. There's, there's, we, we don't get the Messiah after nuclear destruction or ending the world through destroying the environment and climate change. Um, which he's recently called a kind of a twin apocalyptic. Um, but it's a pointless apocalypse. It's nothing but death. It's horrible. And that's the shadow. That's the shadow, the utter meaninglessness of ultimate, of, of ultimate destruction and death. And, 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 and 
there, there is no hope. There is no story. It, it, is, it, is, it is without any kind of meaning. That changes our relationship to death. And when you change your relationship to death, you change us as human beings. You know, that's why he calls the book Death and Life. In other words, it's, it, we, life has meaning because we imagine ourselves symbolically to continue through our children, through our work, through our communal activities, through exalted states, drug states. But we, 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 we always imagine that we will continue in some symbolic way. And, and that's the, those kind of feelings exist as, as a shadow in everybody's thinking. And, you know, to say, well, I don't think about nuclear threat. Have you seen a movie coming out of Hollywood? Have you watched a TV series? Mm-hmm. You, you don't, everybody knows this. Everybody thinks it, it's there in the unconscious. I mean, I've been amazed actually that I have not seen a single commentator make the connection between the coronavirus and the radiation. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing. Yeah. Well, so many things to think with in what you're talking about here. You, you mentioned Lifton, and one of the concepts that was important to me with Lifton is his um, notion of psychic numbing, yeah. which I think is, is relevant here, perhaps, that the, the burden of this knowledge of the pointless apocalypse is so great that it's too great to, to carry around, it, seem, it seems like. I mean, is that, maybe that ties back to our, so the discussion we were having earlier about, about denial and that the, the knowledge that this pandemic has gotten loose and this is a multi-year event and it, it, it can't be drawn to an end until there's a vaccine, maybe if, if then, is that the relationship that you're, you're thinking with here that sort of escaped the bounds of human control? It, it will be with us and amongst us for, I've heard some scientists say, you know, we're living with this now. This coronavirus is just part of, of humanity. We'll live with it. Maybe we'll learn how to cope with it. Maybe we won't. Is that, is that the connection you see to the, to the nuclear? Yeah, I mean, I've stressed the similarities. There are differences. And, and I think psychic numbing, the thing about nuclear threat is the reason is that I, that I think people haven't made the connection between the virus and nuclear and radiation and is that it's so difficult to stay with. It's so difficult to think about that we, 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 we almost have to fall back on a kind of psychic numbing, which is really not helpful because then it's hard to develop a, a nuclear politics that creatively adapts the world to the threats that we pose, that, that are posed uh, from nuclear weapons and from climate change. I do think it's important to remember that the coronavirus is not apocalyptic. It, however many people die from it, it will not end the human project. Right. And those who die individually and collectively, they're tragic. And it's, it's just like a big war or a genocide or, you know, a plague. Well, plagues in the old days. Um, but it's not apocalyptic. But it evokes apocalyptic fears. And because it evokes, because of the similarities with radiation, it evokes something that is largely unconscious that amplifies our experience of the, of the virus, which makes it very difficult to deal with 
rationally with the scientific explanations, you know, and 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 people are confused and who knows where it's where it's going. But the hope is we're, we're not all going to die. I may die, you may die, whatever. Our neighbors may die, and uh, but the human project will continue, unlike a wholesale exchange of nuclear weapons, you know, between right. Russia and the United States or between Pakistan and India now or whatever. That's, um, there's another connection here that you've got me thinking of, which has been on my mind a lot. And, uh, and that is, you know, in the Cold War, the mutually assured destruction theories and, and you know, I think Stanley Kubrick did such a beautiful job in Dr. Strangelove and sort of showing us right. the, the logic, the logic of nuclearism, which is not a logic at all. It's death cult. It's, and, and the realization in those times that there were people, not just average people, but people running the United States who got up in the morning and they, they accepted that. On the behalf of everyone else, they accepted that this, this might happen today. This could go down today. And I've wondered, you know, that's, that's the people who were paying attention, who were against nuclear weapons at that time. I mean, they articulated that clearly. This is too much power for any one person or small cadre of people to have. It corrodes democracy. It gets rid of transparency. It erodes our free press. Um, and, and I've been thinking about that in the context of this pandemic, that we have um, a small group of people who are making outsized decisions. Seemingly, it, it's hard to keep giving them the benefit of the doubt here. So, I mean, I guess my question to you is, is that another dimension of this when we think about um, the connection to the nuclear, the apocalyptic, how do you see it mapping onto the way we relate to our government? It's a very interesting question. I mean, certainly with, with the nuclear priesthood, as it's been called, of, of people who, uh, you know, from the 1950s when it began to emerge, uh, a small cadre of, of uh, experts who claimed that it was much too complicated for ordinary people to understand and therefore the crucial decisions about building and using and the policies around nuclear weapons needed to be made by those who, the physicists who really understood. As Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, the, the leader of the Manhattan Project, uh, pointed out, uh, physicists of known sin. Uh, needless to say, he was not popular among his colleagues for no. such a view. Mostly banished, um, actually. <laughs> <laughs> banished, as a matter of fact, right? Um, but and of course, that's it, uh, I've always found that idea literally repulsive. Ordinary people who know nothing about the physics can understand the idea of everyone dying. And so the, the human meanings of total destruction are ones that should the, the, that ordinary people should be should develop a nuclear politics. There is a kind of a priesthood around the virus. It's, it's not exactly the same um, because they're also confused. Uh, what I'm more impressed with is the way, the corrupt way that Trump himself uh, lies, manipulates, 
delays, will do anything to manipulate and control the, the policies toward the virus in order to get elected. And then that, then because he's, he's been so effective creating this movement, this, this Trumpist, Trumpism, as I call it, um, they are sort of lemmings to the sea. And they, you know, they're the 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 right wing uh, calls them out to go to Lansing, and they go to Lansing without masks and hug each other and stay together and wave Confederate flags, and you know probably half of them will be dead in six months, um, and they're being totally manipulated to you know around the issues of supposed individual freedom. Uh, and calling for, I mean, I mean, it, Trump's called to liberate, you know, the yeah. the, the uh, democratic states. I mean, what language? What repulsive language? Um, completely contradictory. His his own health officials, you know. I've seen some hopeful things there in states that have uh, so-called restarted, that people are not just running back out. Um, that, and, and it may be that, and I hadn't thought about this until this discussion today, but that there may be also this connection back to the Cold War uh, in some ways, that there was a breach of trust with public officials in the Vietnam era and the Cold War um, that we do see resurface in various times since, since that. And maybe this is one of those. People in Georgia, just because you can go get a haircut or go to the beach, that doesn't mean everyone is flocking there and public opinion polls show that even republicans still believe that the social distancing measures are worth are worth doing they have some health I mean, benefit like over 80 percent yeah i mean over 90 percent of democrats believe it but and but it's still the vast majority of republicans um they they know what it means to die right and they know that all legitimate health officials are cautioning and encouraging the continuation of social distancing and using masks. Um, so it's, you know, people aren't stupid. Yeah, so the priesthood- A lot of people on the right wing would like to believe that, that ordinary people are stupid and can be controlled and manipulated, but they're not. They need to be trusted and empowered and, and, and encouraged to uh, participate in a common effort to uh, mitigate the, we, we can't, at this point we can't eliminate, but we can certainly mitigate the effects of the widespread death. I wanna remind people we're, you're listening to COVID Calls. My guest today, Chuck Strozier. And Chuck, you mentioned a little while earlier, um, some of the connection you saw, you talked about the zones of sadness. You wrote this tremendous book after the fire stopped burning about 9-11. And let's, let's open a conversation about that. Cause I also think, you know, there were some, as the, as the death, this is hard to remember almost, as the death toll from COVID-19 was approaching Katrina level, there was a, some stories about that. And as it approached 9-11 level, there were some stories about that. And then it raced past it so fast that I think we haven't gone back to those discussions and gotten everything we could out of them. You were treating patients after 9-11, you were teaching students after 9-11 at a college that lost many students who were fire, firefighters and, and in the police force. Um, you really, you lived that experience um, as a person in New York as well. Let's talk a little bit about these connections you see 
maybe how America changed after 9-11 that's affecting the way we look at the pandemic or just resonances you see in this moment? Well, I think there are a lot of resonances. You know, one thing that, that, uh, it, that we all, you and I, scientists, the health officials, the doctors, the nurses, we, it, we are all, it's a shared trauma. And, and that's certainly something that I experienced in my work, my research on 9-11. Um, you know, I was going through, my family was affected, my wife was affected, she got caught in the plume, she had lung disease, you know, and I was talking to people who were deeply traumatized. So I think it, you know, that, that sense of shared trauma is um, something that is, that, that's a real area of common commonality between what we're going through with the pandemic um and i mean you're doing these COVID calls and creating a, a wonderful archive for for people to understand it both now and in the future um but you're also living in princeton and you've got children and you know you you, you have your you must have your own worries you know um and as i i i had my own uh, anxieties, which is why I left New York in mid-March, and it's better here, but it's it's certainly there. Um, and I talk to my patients who are, you know, even more uh, uh, anxious. I try to try to help them, but I can't deny the fact that you know it affects me as well. Um, but I do think that the 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 sense of being in the midst of, particularly in New York, particularly in New York although it's it's also across the globe and everywhere in the country that sense that we are in the middle of a of of of, of a disaster where it's an ongoing unfolding disaster um and that was certainly true of 9-11 i mean and you know you and i taught the course on it three times um and one of the key things that we emphasized in understanding 9-11 it, it all occurred, it, it was not a day. Right. The day began a process. I wrote my book emphasizing the first hundred days when right. the fire still burned on the pile. But even that is misleading because we started one war and cleaned up the, the area and then started another war and hundreds of thousands of people died. Over the course of the next decade, millions were made refugees and so you know, it's all part of an ongoing process. And I think that's something we certainly see, are seeing now and feeling with the uh, pandemic. One of the connections that strikes me has to do with, um, actually with the dead. Um, and um, I'm, I was I've struck, you, you remember that photograph? It was a pretty famous photograph in the time of St. Vincent Hospital, of all the doctors and nurses outside the hospital on September 11 with the empty stretchers. I have that picture in my book. Right? Yeah. They were waiting for, the, waiting for the bodies, and the bodies never came. Yeah, they're waiting. Right. Um, and, of course, hospitals in New York had the opposite issue in the month of April. But at the same time, so much of that was still the... the you know, those, those emergency rooms are not open for any news camera to walk in and take pictures of. Those ICU beds, even families can't get in. There's such a distance and a remove from the body, unlike other disasters in which so much of it happens open and in public. Um, I don't know if you've been struck by that connection and, and what the larger impact 
of that may be, when disasters occur and we, we don't have that closure, in 9-11 it was literally the disintegration of bodies. In this case, it's, it's death and bodies being removed and we don't have a chance to, to grieve appropriately. I, I still, I don't know how to make sense of that and how that may affect us. You know, the, the, the thing about 9-11 was that so many people died because they were incinerated, because they were burned. And, and that, that put them into the air. And New Yorkers breathed that air. So we literally took the, the, the dead into our, into our lungs, into our hearts, into our bodies. Um, and the parallel I made in my book on 9-11 is with the Holocaust, where, you know, in the summer, by the summer of 1944 in Auschwitz, 100,000 people a day, I'm sorry, a month, were being burned. And it's, you know, on a scale far out, stripping 9-11. But it, uh, it also now with the pandemic uh, has, has a parallel. It's not the same, but a certain parallel in the uh, mass death and people, we, you can't see your loved one. And they... truck and they had been piling the bodies up in the truck. I mean, just grotesque kind of stories of desecration of the dead, of the, of, of the dead. And it's so important for humans to have rituals around death, to do certain things with the body, to honor it, to have memorials, and to see the body. There's something about seeing, being with the body at death, but also to see that body, to connect with it. People have feelings about the soul, but the body, you know, whatever you believe about what leaves the body, death leaves the body. And, and, and that body has to, be, has to be handled and respected and dealt with in a way that has integrity for people and for families and even for communities. And I think that's been profoundly interrupted in the uh, pandemic. That issue is one that is still a matter of contention around 9-11. Yeah. And the fact that the unidentified um, fragments which have been retained by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office are, are there at the site underground in the, in the museum uh, behind the wall. And there are many families who are still deeply outraged about that about the, what they see as a, mis, as a desecration of the body, but, and still this problem of so many who are never identified. Um, and I wonder again, if we can draw some parallels between that moment and our time. I mean, I think the, the grieving of 9-11 is, is incomplete. It, how could it be over by now? It's gotta be a long-term process, but somehow also still the inability to identify some of those bodies and those really terrible fights about how to remember 9-11. I, I feel like we're gonna be in some very similar kind of territory with this pandemic, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's, the, I think the word is synergy, you know, the, 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 the inability, our inability to mourn 9-11 and to mourn and to take responsibility for 
the kind of the hundreds of thousands of deaths that we that were the result of the of the uh, what Obama called the dumb war that we fought um, and the millions of refugees the, the 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 sort of failure to own that then makes it uh, uh, brings it back with a vengeance to and a confused with a confused vengeance to the kind of despair that we've seen with the pandemic and and more bodies and more more meaningless death and more confused death um, and these things build on one another you know it's not as though we have one disaster and then we have certain consequences and then it's over and then we forget it and then we move on and then we have another disaster you know it's not they're not episodic like that they reverberate and connect and reinforce and amplify e uh, each other i've been thinking about that a lot that point that you just made that 911 uh, after 9-11, so much of our national discourse went back to talking about the Vietnam era. And that election of 2004 actually hinged on, you know, what had people been doing in Vietnam? Whereas the, uh, the 2000 election was, was less, but somehow 9-11 jarred loose some resonance to Vietnam. And, and you know, you look at um, people now who are experiencing this disaster who might have been young when 9-11 happened, They've lived through 9-11, if they're in the United States. September 11, Katrina, the 2008 crash, Hurricane Sandy, and now this. I mean, what a disastrous era. And this, as you say, this sort of cumulative effect of people over time. I mean, at some point, does it, I want to try to remain hopeful here. Does that somehow build resilience in individuals or does it, Maybe we can't generalize, but I want to think with this a little bit because we have truly lived in disastrous times. We have not had a world war that's affected the United States. So you talk about the aftermath of 9-11 in Iraq. I mean, other parts of the world have borne the brunt of what's happened here in America, but Americans have not lived through war, but we have certainly lived in a disastrous age. Yeah, no, absolutely. A disastrous age and, and, and we, we have, we're, we're, we're dealing with 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 death and death in new ways, um, we are resilient. I think humans are resilient. Um, and 9/11, for example, um, created all this havoc. We had dumb wars. We had all the kind of chaos and and and, and that we inflicted and created on the on the Middle East. On the other hand, you know, and that grew from a kind of a panicked response to. A brief period of communal rebirth in New York and the country, and then very quickly a kind of a paranoid, um, aggressive searching for vengeance and wipe out the enemy and kill all Muslims and destroy the Middle East, and, and leading to you know sort of very uh, violent uh, wars. Um, but in time, uh, we developed. And, and I think, you know, if you figure for 10 years after 9-11, that's the basic story. But the last 10 years, counterterrorism has matured. And I think people have, are now, have a different attitude toward terrorism. They, 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 they recognize that to overreact to terrorism is to play into terrorist hands. Um, and people are much more likely, you know, sort of counterterrorism has stabilized. 
at all levels. There's much better uh, coordination of counterterrorism efforts at the national and state and local levels and globally and uh, cooperation between various agencies. Um, and so I think that, that that's an area of vast overreaction that led to that led in time to a, to a more resilient uh, 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 expression of the human spirit. And I think with the with the pandemic, with with COVID, in time. I mean, I, I, it's not going to happen right away. People who think it's going to be over in July or June mm-hmm. uh, are going to be seriously disappointed, and it'll probably be worse, as a lot of officials say, worse next winter than it has been this winter. Um, but it will end. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't believe that we're not that we're we, we are capable of finding an answer to this virus. I don't know what it is, yeah. <laughs> but I, I remain hopeful that we will f- find it eventually, you know, and we will find ways to survive and, and, and it will have consequences. We, and it'll take a long time to recover fully. Um, but I think we are resilient enough as humans to um, uh, uh, survive and heal and create new forms, new collective political, but also medical structures and forms to deal with this particular virus and hopefully learn from it so that we can survive other viruses because this won't be the first one. I want to remind people that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking with Chuck Strozier. We have a Few minutes left. I want to get a couple of other things in. I just wanted to return back to something before we lose it entirely about your discussion about um, 9/11 and smoke and breathing, because that's another connection. I've, I've been thinking a lot about lungs and and um, the sort of shared, of course, the air and the pollutants in the air and the the mic the virus and the transmission of the virus. Um, it's, it's, you know, I think of these ways we often divide disasters up into these various, you know, it's a fire or it's an earthquake or it's this or it's that. And it, it's something very powerful about the way you talked about the, collect, the collective experience of 9-11. And not everyone um, who, not everyone breathed that air, just like not everyone is going to breathe in we hope we know they won't all breathe in this virus, but there still is this sense of connecting and wanting to connect to it. And you talk about the zones of sadness in your in your book about 9/11. And I've been I've been thinking about that a lot. So so some people will actually have that direct physical connection. They'll find out they were they either had it or they were exposed. Um, they recovered. They didn't know they were carrying it, just like 9/11. Some people really, truly experienced on the site, but many, many millions, billions of other people experienced it too, in meaningful ways, in ways that really changed their lives. And so I guess the question I'm coming to is about survivors. And are we, are we all survivors of this? How do, we, how do we turn this moment, those who survive, how do we turn that to some advantage? How do we, how do we take this moment and turn it into a moment of, collectivity and empathy and sharing 
rather than saying, you know, there's people who had it and people who didn't. And I already see that bifurcation and I want to reject that and move more to this sense of communality and community and survivorship. Right. It, it, the, the, the one, we don't know fully who the survivors of the coronavirus are. And if, you know, if 25% of the people are infected and have no idea that they're infected, but are carriers, it, it complicates that sense of who survives and who isn't. And in, in, in one sense, we're all, I think in a larger sense, um, the, uh, unlike 9-11. 9-11, you either died, for the most part, there were people who were injured, but for the most part, you either died or you lived and you were a survivor. Now, many people, as we discovered over the course of the next decade and even into the, the second decade, people had their lungs affected, particularly those who worked on the pile, the firemen who worked on the pile. And people have been dying from prematurely from cancers for a long time, which is actually not unlike the, the virus, you know, and the lungs and the, and the infected, and you're usually lung disease and lung cancer and that kind of thing that people have suffered from. Um, but the survivors, the, 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 you know, we, we also don't, I mean, with the pandemic, because we don't have a good test and we don't have an antibody test, we, we don't know what, what, what number of people have had it and don't know it. I mean, there could be millions, millions, probably are millions and millions of people. Um, but there is a, you know, more politically and psychologically, we live as survivors, even if we don't have it. I mean, I feel just, you know, having fled New York and having faced the real dangers and, and, and continue to be in a, you know, in the cohort of people who are most threatened um, from getting it. And I'm, you know, very exceedingly cautious. I feel I sort of live as a survivor. And I think, I think everyone has that, has that sense of, we may not have it directly, but increasingly we all know people who have it and we read the stories like the obituary, the moving obituary. Um, and, you know, it's part of our collective experience of the pandemic, which is, has a hopeful side. Hopeful side because that, I think it expands our empathy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to get to one more question, Chuck, and I didn't, uh, I had forgotten to tell you that I was going to ask you about this, but I think it, you won't mind because you're a scholar of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and Lincoln has been talked a lot about in this last two months, um, so in a couple of different ways. And I don't know if it had shown up on your radar, but I know you're always up for a good uh, chat about Abraham Lincoln having written this great book, Your Friend A. Lincoln's tremendous book. Um, and two ways. One, the obvious one, presidential leadership. Um, okay, we don't have to beat a dead horse here. Donald Trump doesn't seem to have measured up to the test of, of Abraham Lincoln. But I, do, I think it's interesting that Lincoln is, is invoked always in these moments of national trial, not just about how you manage the government, but how you actually lead how you exercise moral authority in a crisis. So that's been discussed. But then also um, that Lincoln's ability uh, to be human, that is to mourn, to experience his own demons, his own depression, um, 
and that he was a full human being. And it was obvious to those who knew him uh, at that time that he was truly grieving and affected by the Civil War. And I, I don't know if you've, if you've, I know Lincoln's always sort of on your mind, um, what you've thought about Abraham Lincoln in these, in these times, anything we can draw from his, his leadership or just how he experienced the Civil War as a human being that could be helpful to us right now. Right, and I, I think that's a, that's a very interesting point you made, or several points. I mean, and he was, he, he was a truly admirable human being. And there, there, there aren't a lot of presidents one can say that about. And, <laughs> Too few. <laughs> and particularly the one we're living with. But he was a truly admirable, interesting, kind, empathic human being. He was also shrewd and smart and a statesman and a good politician and all those things. But he led the country through a civil war. He led the country through a war in which, you know, latest count, 720,000 people died. At least a million and a half were seriously maimed, you know, for the next few decades. America was populated by people with one arm and one leg and serious wounds to their other parts of their body. And so he was, he was able to to create a kind of a collective sense of mourning for that. And without denying it, we needed to live with it. We needed to feel it. We needed to have compassion for, um, for the survivors, for the widows, for their children as the war ended. And he gave meaning for why the war occurred. Um, and particularly in the second inaugural, which is right at the end of his life, a month before he died. Um, the that that explained the point of the war in ultimately as as god's punishment for the sin of slavery and that made sense of the dying i mean the difference of course is that it even if our current political leadership had the compassion and the humanity of lincoln there's no way that you could find that kind of reason for the pandemic. It, 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 is, it remains deeply confusing. You know, you can't give it, you can't explain it in the same way that Lincoln, as a remarkable president and human being, could explain the war uh, for Americans. But I can't help but think as the election time draws near into the fall that that's what the two candidates will be forced to do is to draw, to explain to Americans why we've gone through this. Mm -hmm. They'll have to, right? Well, but, they'll try. Yeah. But I'm not sure what the answer is. There's no, yeah. There, and there's no Lincoln on the stump. Somehow I think he could no, explain Lincoln, this. No Lincoln on the stump. The, the, and the, the, you know, given Trumpism and given the, the, the uh, toxic nature of the movement, the right-wing, paranoid, mean, ugly movement, um, I fear that there'll be some very ugly. So, um... I want to thank you for the time that you've given us this afternoon, Chuck, uh, for this conversation. And um, 
I, with a few guests, I've been hoping to get them back at a later point also because things are going to happen. A lot of things are going to happen in the, in the months to come. So I hope we can get you back uh, maybe a little bit later, later on in the, in the summer. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls. And tomorrow I have Daniel Zerilli from the New York City Mayor's Office uh, to talk about climate change and COVID-19. I think we're looking forward to a great conversation. And uh, we're on every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time with COVID calls. Chuck Strozier, um, great to see you. Great to speak with you Thank and you. to learn from you as always. It's an admirable project. Um, it was good to talk to you. Stay healthy, everyone. See you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.